The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, as we sit here and come to you in prayer as the, the feet pound out of the room, we have audible reminder of some of the tasks before us that we're talking about, parenting and children, raising kids as parents in a family or as grandparents or as people in a church family. Of course, much of this applies to us in all stages of life, but we are particularly focused on parenting and for those of us here who have kids that just left the room or kids who are away at the youth retreat this weekend, this is perhaps particularly relevant to us, and I want to pray for that group first and say, would you do a work in, in our lives as parents? As Nate mentioned, it is a, a difficult task that you have given to us. It's hard work. So would you graciously meet those who are parents of kids still at home, give help to them, give help to us, lift up our hearts, strength to our hands, hope to them. For those who are around them, grandparents, other members in the church, would you, would you speak through them wise counsel and words of encouragement? Or would you help us to be uh, a generation of your people who raise up the ones who are following to know you and to fear you and to walk in your ways, to bring honor to you here in this world in coming years. Help us to do that well. And Lord, we pray all this, not just so that our lives would be easy and so that our kids would turn out okay, but because we want to see your name hallowed and your kingdom come and your will done here on earth. So we pray, really, that you would use us as, as instruments in your hand to build your kingdom in our kids and then to build with our kids through them to build your kingdom in the world. We want to see your name honored. And so what we're asking is for you to stretch out your hand, give strength to our hands, and raise up servants now as parents and then in coming years. Raise up servants. Raise up a people. We'll be a church that, that sings of you in joy and, and serves you in, in strength and in gladness. We'll do a little bit of that this morning here with us and in us. We just sang of how we need you. We cast our cares on you. We need your presence. We need your power. We need you. And so I pray, not just for the parenting task, but for even this moment and in the next however many minutes that we listen to your word, would you please come and dwell in our midst here and move us? Would you cleanse away all distraction and all sin? Lord, I know my own heart and mind are like a flood sometimes, distracted with things sin and other things. And I, I pray for me and for all of us here that you would remove from us distraction, 
that you would move from us the, the barrier that sin is. If, if need be, you would lead us in repentance even now and that you would wipe that away and put us in a place of, of attention with no barrier, no, no odd between us, no, 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 uh, no wall, but clear communication, us before you, listening. And then I pray you would teach. Spirit of God, would you please come and make your will known to us, teach us, and shape us. So give us ears to listen and send forth your word like light to lead us in the darkness. We look to you for this. Pray for your hand on us now and ask you to build your church. And we thank you for being able to be involved in that, for the privilege of being your people. So come now and have your, have your way with us in this time. Teach us and guide us and shape us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. This morning we conclude our brief series on the topic of parenting. We've taken over the last four weeks or so, we've taken a, a little break, a departure from our usual practice of preaching through whole books of the Bible to give some time to a short sermon series on the topic of parenting. We began in Ephesians chapter 6, where we saw there, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, I have some specific verses about parenting, about mothers and fathers and children. But we saw there that the larger context around those verses included an explanation, a teaching, a commandment to all of the church for all of life about the importance of being filled with the Spirit. For all of us in all areas of life, parents in particular, children in particular, it's important that we be filled with, that is, that God be inside of us, directing us, empowering us, controlling us from within, use the words of Philippians, filling us with his fullness. If we are to be what God means for us to be, particularly in this context, we are to be parents, as God means for us to parent. That was the context. And then that passage presented to us the task of parenting in, in kind of two main words. Depending on your translation, it says something like instructing and disciplining. Those are the two kind of main words, and in one way or another, instructing has been behind the last three weeks, starting in Deuteronomy 6, and then moving on to two weeks in the wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs, we've been talking about instruction, teaching kids who the one and only God is, what he's like, what he requires in the context of what he's graciously done to save. So teaching Christ to kids, and then teaching or instructing how it is that in the fear of the Lord we walk out into the world wisely, in wisdom, rather than in folly. So we talked about, from the book of Proverbs, guarding the heart, attending to what comes in and then how it's processed, and attending to friends and influences from the outside, and talked about last week then handling money and working and talking, speaking, presenting oneself. Instruction. And obviously there's more we could have said about that, but now we're going to move on here in the last week to the other word from Ephesians 6, the discipline word. And we're going to address that also in the book of Proverbs because there are a number of verses. I will read a few verses, refer to a few more verses, but there are more still in the book of Proverbs itself that talk about the topic of discipline. So we're going to still be in Proverbs, 
I'll read some verses, and all together, the ones that I read, the ones that I refer to, and others, all together, here's the main point that I'm working towards this morning. They, they present to us this, this idea. God calls parents to bless their children by diligently, lovingly, prayerfully disciplining them. So God calls parents to bless their children. That's important that we get that idea. This is to bless your children. God calls parents to bless their children by diligently, lovingly, prayerfully disciplining them. That's where I'm going this morning. I'm going to read, as I said, a few different verses from the book of Proverbs, and then I'll make three observations in support of that main point. So I'm going to be hopping around here. First, Proverbs 13, verse 24. Let me list them all for you. You can write them down. 13, 24. 22, 15. 23, 13 to 14. And 29, 15 to 19. I'll read those now. There are others that I'll refer to and it could have gone other places because there's a lot about discipline and instruction and guidance. I'm going to read those verses, beginning in 13, verse 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. 22:15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. 23, 13 to 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. 29, verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. When the wicked increase, transgression increases, but the righteous will look upon their downfall. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. By mere words, a servant is not disciplined, for though he understands, he will not respond. Those passages from the book of Proverbs, as I said, I'll refer to others, but altogether, I'm going to make three observations supporting the point about blessing comes from diligent discipline. So here's the first Here's the first point. I'm going to raise it as a question and answer. Question, why discipline? Because discipline drives away folly to impart wisdom and life. Why? Discipline drives away folly to impart wisdom and life. The starting point of Proverbs and the basic assumption behind the, all of the wisdom literature, behind the whole book, something that we saw in the very beginning People don't start wise. People don't start out naturally 
born with wisdom. It doesn't come to us just by birth. It doesn't come to us naturally. And even left to ourselves, we don't even seek it. We don't seek out wisdom. Instead, that's why the book of Proverbs begins with the language about teaching, about giving instruction, and about then receiving it. It must be prudence and discretion are given to youth. So that's in the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, because youth lack it from the start. That's, that's, that's the base. That's where we begin. Or to put it the other way, if we lack wisdom, then as we just heard, chapter 22, verse 15 puts it, the opposite of Lacking wisdom is that we have folly. Folly is bound up in the heart of the child. It's in there. It's tied in there. It's contained there. That's where we start. In the heart of the immature. Our natures, from our youth, are fallen in sin, and therefore we do not guard our hearts, and we do not process what comes in there properly from a godly perspective. Remember, wisdom is not just worldly wisdom. We're talking about from a godly perspective. We don't process it properly. We don't take care about our company. We don't handle money properly. We don't like to work and defer gratification. We don't speak truthfully if it doesn't suit us. We're not humble. We don't exercise restraint and so on. From our earliest moments, you, you watch a child grow up from our earliest moments. We are people who do not fear God, who don't understand God's world, who don't understand where it's all going. We are inclined instead towards instant self-gratification and towards sloth and towards rashness and towards looseness and indulgence and therefore we are in bondage to base feelings and impulses. That's immaturity. Unfortunately, we see that in a lot of adults too who have never been the objects of wise discipline. Folly is bound up in the heart of children. That's the starting point. And God has told us a significant way that we who are in authority are to help, to bless those under us, children in this case. We are to discipline them. It says, folly is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it far away. Now, there are a couple of words there that are hard for us to hear. Discipline itself is a hard word for us to hear, let alone rod. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. But discipline, the rod of discipline, drives it far away. We have to realize this is a blessing to remove folly. If, if you could in some way or another act, the Bible says with the rod of discipline, if you could in some way or another act to separate your child from folly, Here's the path of folly. You're walking it by nature. You start out on that path, and I could act in some way to remove you from folly. That would be a good thing. That would be a blessing. The kind of thing you'd want to do for someone that you love. As Proverbs 13, 24 puts it, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. If you love him, you're diligent to discipline him. Does that make you think of anything else in the Bible? It should make you think of Hebrews chapter 12, where God is said to love his children, to love his people, and therefore to discipline them. He disciplines those he loves. Love and discipline go together and in biblical terminology, hatred 
and non-discipline go together because that will leave you on the path of folly. But let's not, let's not miss the Hebrews 12 connection here. This is fundamental. This is foundational to how we think about all of discipline here. You've got to understand we're talking about discipline and love and parents and children, and God links those two things together because a very important starting place for us, a foundational starting place for us as we approach discipline is to think about, I too, if you're a Christian, am a person under loving discipline from God the Father. And there are a hundred questions and answers that rise right out of that. How should I approach all this? How does God approach me? What should I do in this situation? How would God approach me in this situation? Again and again and again, if you will remember the connection between I and disciplining my child and he, the father, disciplining me, his son, you're off on the right foot. Discipline and love are very closely connected. He has saved a people, you. He saved you and then says, but I know that you naturally still walk the path of folly and so I will engage with you in a way that will drive you away from that. And then he says to you who are parents, to us who are parents, likewise, you have children that I have put in your home but they still, beautiful and precious as they are, they still walk the path of folly. So you engage with them like I engage with you in discipline to drive them away from the path of folly. That is a good thing. That is a good thing. Drive away from folly, but particularly, doubly so, if you think about what replaces folly. Wisdom. You will bring to them wisdom, which leads to life. That's logically true. That's how the book is set up. The two paths, the only two paths you can walk, folly and wisdom. So if you're not walking this path, you're walking the path of wisdom. So logically that's true. But listen to a couple other verses, and we're going to put, put a few verses together here. Listen to this. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. So if you love knowledge, if you read this book, you realize, I need knowledge. How do I get that? Discipline. You're stupid to hate reproof, though. So reproof, you see reproof there is used for discipline. So discipline can be reproof, can be words of correction and rebuke. But not only correction, not only words. A couple other verses. 29 verses 15, 17, and 19. Put all those, those together. I read them. The rod and reproof give wisdom. Both. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. And then, by mere words, a servant is not disciplined. Servants are children. Not mere words, rod and reproof. Mere words won't do it because, though he understands, he will not respond. The verse says. This is truth. We've got to put a few things together there. This is truth. Love disciplines because love says, I see the connection between discipline and knowledge, and I know that knowledge leads to life. There's a path here. I want to take you off of this path, and I want to put you on this path 
a path that will be blessing for you and, did you notice also, blessing for me, mother? Did you hear that? He will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. To your heart, mother, father, to the whole household. And you're going to release this, church, this child onto the world, to the whole world. Think about all of the trouble afflicted on other people, yourself, siblings, people out in the world, that comes from a person who walks the path of folly. God is attempting to love you and to love your other children and to love all of the world by saying, I want to change this person's path off of Folly to wisdom. I'm going to give life to him, to Junior here, by moving him, and I'm going to give life to everybody else too, to your household, to the whole world, by maturing this person under your hand. There is much blessing, not just the avoidance of folly, but the attaining of blessing, of wisdom, and life that comes from it as discipline is multiplied. So for all, and particularly for Junior's sake, chapter 23, verse 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Which is not saying, if you strike him with a rod, and I understand, I'm going to talk about the rod here in a second, but it's not saying, if you strike him with a rod, don't worry, it's not going to kill him. That's not what it means. It's an if-then. In both verses, back to back, it's an if-then. Chapter 23, verse 13 and verse 14. If you strike him with a rod, then he will not die. Next verse, same point. If you... I lost it here. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. If-then. How do I keep him from dying? How do I keep his soul from the place of death, from the grave? Sometimes literally, sometimes we're talking about the death of the grave. How do I do that? I discipline him. I don't withhold discipline from him. I apply it, and therefore he will not die. Therefore his soul will not go to Sheol. The meaning is very important to grasp. Discipline gives knowledge. Discipline then gives the path of wisdom opened up and encouraged to be walked upon. It gives blessing to this one. It gives blessing to the siblings. It gives blessing to the whole home, to me, the parent, to all of the world. It keeps him from death, from the grave. Discipline is critical. We are commanded not to overlook it. And we are forewarned because it's as if the Bible realizes that we would be inclined to overlook it. As if the Bible would realize that we would be, we would be tempted to think, strike with a rod sounds really harsh. I think I won't do that in love. And the Bible calls our bluff. Calls our bluff. Who spares the rod hates his son. Not loves, hates. 
calls our bluff. As if knowing that we would be inclined to go that way. Now, I need to talk. The next point I'm going to talk about what the rod is, what's striking is I'm going to talk about that. But you've got to first buy, I'm supposed to do it. The Bible says so. It knew we would be tempted to call it love to skip it. And so it says, no, that's hatred. Love is to discipline. With word, but not only with word, with rod also. Word alone will not suffice. And it's as if God knew that we would be ourselves undisciplined and tempted to laziness and would want to skip the work of it. Because it's work. I intend to talk about a, a very brief little scenario which I've done a few times in my past for a half an hour, for 45 minutes, when I'd rather be doing just about anything else. It's work. And being undisciplined as we often are, he wants to alert us to the hard work of it and point out but this is what love is, and this is how I have engaged with you for your good. Like me, then, love others, not yourself. Seek their good, not your own. Engage with them. Spend the time and the effort to discipline this child away from to separate out the path of folly and place him and everyone else on the path of blessing in life. Now, there's a great big question how do we do this? What, 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 how is this a connection? How does the rod drive away folly and, and produce life? How does that happen? That's tied up in what the rod does. We'll talk about that in a moment. But first, I, I just have to ask you to answer the question for yourself, particularly if you are still a parent of kids at home. Am I up for this or not? Yes or no? Because if not... We need not bother. We need not bother with the, with the rest of this time here. We, we need not bother with, with, with attention and with prayer. We really need not bother with attempting to move our children off of the path of wisdom if we're not actually going to discipline them because the Bible just told us that won't work. So you've you got to kind of answer a first fundamental question here. Am I in or out of discipline. And ask and answer that question again under the context of God's perspective. God is in with me for discipline. He disciplines those he loves and has told us this is a good thing. Not just a, a hard thing, but it's a good thing. It produces blessing for all of the world and for this one that you love. We must do it in love and seek to drive away folly and thereby bring on wisdom in life. If we love our kids and want to love our neighbors as ourselves by raising up wise people to be released into the world, we'll seek to bless them in this way. That's why we discipline. But how? That's the second point. Second question and answer. How do we discipline? And the answer is, we discipline by reproof and by the rod. We discipline by reproof and 
not or, and by the rod. In several of the passages that I read, you, you heard it and probably noticed it, and more that I didn't, the Bible is perfectly content to use language like strike with the rod. So let's just be honest. That sounds really odd and hard to us. Awkward, at least. But the Bible uses it all the time. So let's try to understand a little bit. The rod is an instrument of power, essentially a big stick. An instrument of power wielded by authority, force, to inflict pain that is less than fatal. Think about the division here. Rod and sword. What's the difference? Not saying that you can't ever fail to kill somebody with a sword or you can't ever accidentally kill somebody with a rod, but the great big division there is swords are for killing, rods aren't. That's the difference. It is an instrument of power and authority designed to inflict pain, but not fatally. I'm going to work on a difference here of hurt versus injury. It is designed to hurt. It is not designed to injure. It is designed to afflict, but not designed to kill. That's the basic division here between sword and rod, and the basic point we need to take out of this. And you can read in in lots of different places, lots of different literature written by well-meaning Christians who debate all kinds of immaterial things. Like, what would rods have usually been made of? What kind of wood? And that would affect the density. And how long would it be? That would affect the, the, the power. And what would be the diameter or the circumference of a rod? And, and then, can you use plastic spoons or wooden spoons? Or should you use your hand? or Immaterial. Pointless. You need to grasp the basic idea When the Bible says, as every original reader would have understood, strike someone with a rod, what it's saying is, hurt him, but not in a lasting or permanent way. That's the basic point. The goal is to cause physical pain. Not just reprove with words. That alone will not suffice. Though he understands, he will not change. The goal is to cause physical pain, not just reproof, pain, but not of a permanent or debilitating sort. So it doesn't matter what size or what diameter of rod you use or if you use a plastic spoon in your hand. The goal is to inflict pain that doesn't injure. That's what the Bible commends and, in fact, commands. which is a big issue in our modern world, of course. I've, I've been told that there are some people in Germany who are listening to this sermon where it is illegal to spank, as I understand. Who knows if one day it will be in America. And we read in the news all kinds of you know, football players and whatnot who are doing all kinds of things. Big issue in our society. And let me say very clearly, very clearly, very clearly, I'm going to have to try to qualify this in like 15 different ways. 
say very clearly, society is and should be very sensitive to such things as brutality and abuse. We should be very sensitive to that, and especially brutality towards those who cannot defend themselves. Public sentiment, public speech, and even local law should rise up and defend the defenseless from brutality. That should be agreed upon by all. It is agreed upon clearly by the Bible. God clearly thinks that too. The problem is, the obvious answer to this dilemma is that strike with a rod is not abusive or brutal, as I've just defined it. What, ne- never mind that someone in society will attempt to say that, yes, anything, anything in that category at all, by definition, is. We should just say, well, that's, that's your theory. And for every instance in the news of somebody who has done something brutal, there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of examples where this has been practiced and hasn't been brutal, hasn't been abusive, hasn't been injurious, hasn't been lasting, hasn't been permanent, but has been, instead been incredibly helpful. So thank you for your opinion. I disagree. We need to be really clear about that while being extremely clear that we are against abuse and against brutality. And the difficulty is that, I I know the difficulty is that I'm talking to a a range of people, and there will be people on both ends of the spectrum here, as well as people in the large middle. And so I need to say, as one of my many qualifiers on this point, if you or if your spouse or if your child or if your neighbor even thinks that you have a problem with this, then talk to somebody then don't, don't view what I'm saying as justification to go out and... No. Part of wisdom, part of restraint, part of pursuit of godliness is to say, my spouse thinks I have a problem with this. I think I have a problem with this. Maybe I should, before I take what he said and, and connect it to this, maybe I should talk to somebody else about how to apply that to my particular situation. So I encourage you, be wise and be wary of your own heart. Think about how God disciplines you graciously for your good, afflicting in a way that doesn't injure. Think. So, I need to qualify that a bunch of ways because there is some danger here. However, we can't mix categories and and hide behind confusion of terminology and say, because abuse is wrong, therefore spanking is wrong. No. It isn't. That's just wrong thinking. We are against injury, we are against lasting harm, but we are in favor of a type of hitting that causes pain by design. Not just for the sake of causing pain. Remember, discipline is designed to drive away folly and bring wisdom and life. So how does the inflicting of pain 
accomplish that in ways that mere words don't. Here's why pain is required. In short, it works by bringing otherwise distant consequences near. This is the key. By bringing consequences that are otherwise distant and hard to see, hard to believe, it brings them near, brings them right up into the present tense. All folly seems fun and entertaining in the short run. Disobedience in particular seems desirable. You read through the Proverbs and see every example of of folly and fools and any attempt to correct with words of, of reproof that is then rejected is further folly. And all of that, it, it, it's right tied to a, a belief that this is what's best for me, and this is what's fun, this is what's enjoyable, this is what's good. And it isn't. Folly, the Proverbs are making clear again and again and again, folly leads to pain and suffering and loss and eventual death because you recall the words, the moral words that we saw last week, God hates, God regards folly as an abomination and there is eternal, not just temporal, but eternal consequence to folly. However, that's way, 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 way down there and this is right now fun and what we're trying to do with pain is bring, no, 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 bring it right here. You thought that was good? It isn't. It hurts. Trying to bring consequences that are way down the road into the present tense. So that it can be felt as a near consequence, not just discussed as an eventual one. And this works because of how God designed people. All of us. Youths in particular. Youths in particular because children, particularly young children, and this changes as they grow, which I'll come to in a moment, have no ability to understand time and eventuality and cause and effect over long term. They live in the here and now. They don't think well. They think very concretely. And kids, and, and especially all of, all of us, but especially kids, we all respond to pain long before we respond to theories or ideas. C.S. Lewis said it in a different context. You probably know this quote. Pain, it was in the movie, in fact, if you saw the movie years and years ago, pain is God's megaphone. I think it's to a, to a deaf and dying world. I'm not sure how that ends exactly, but pain is God's megaphone. God speaks. God designed us to hear pain. And so in love, we try to speak God's truth, to communicate God's truth in pain. Don't walk this path. This path hurts. See? This path hurts. Continuing on, it will only lead to more pain. And I will bless you by making that completely obvious to you right here and right now. The pain component is important. It's critical. It must hurt for it to help physically. All these instructions about striking with the rod, an instrument of pain, 
They must be about physical pain. It cannot be less than that. But it can be more than that. Here's what I mean. One excellent book on parenting teaches that up to age five, the main lesson any child needs to get is disobedience hurts. Up to age five, disobedience hurts. Up to that age, such a sentence and such a reality is very concrete. It has to hurt physically because I can't think of anything else other than physical concrete. I can't imagine the, the abstract concept of metaphysical hurt. It's got to be physical. However, we all know that spanking, and for the record, when I'm talking about striking with a rod, I have two things in mind, slapping a hand and spanking a bottom. Those two things. We all know that that becomes a little bit more awkward and less effective as kids get older, and thankfully, by God's design, as kids get older, they begin to go through a change, that they begin to be able to think a little less concretely and a little more abstractly. So there are other ways that you can hurt them. An example. You have a 12-year-old boy, suppose. When he was five, you spanked him to teach him that disobedience hurts. And when he's 12, one day around the dinner table in a, in a, a totally benign conversation with no, no animosity whatsoever, he just came home from football practice that day, and for some reason he says, you know, football hurts. And then somehow or another the topic of spanking comes up, and he says, yeah, you haven't been able to actually hurt me like football hurts in a long time. Think about it. Without going to brutality, without going to injury, physically, what can you do to a 12-year-old boy who plays football? That actually hurts worse than, than what he just went through. So what you're teaching him is disobedience hurts less than other things in life. Less than football practice or less than wind sprints at basketball practice. You're, you're, you're actually not communicating correctly anymore if you're only thinking physical. Thankfully, that 12-year-old boy probably now has other areas in his life in which you could hurt him. Now, another qualifier here. I hope that you hear, I hope that you, you get the the little tone I'm putting on hurt, because I don't want to present it as if our goal, like we should walk around thinking, how can I hurt my kids? Do you hear the tone that I'm trying to use in that word? I, I hope you do. It's, it's important. How do I love my kids by disciplining them might be another way to put it. But I also hesitate here and, and give a qualifier I just presented a scenario of a 12-year-old boy that, for whom physical punishment doesn't work anymore. 
We probably didn't, I don't really remember, but I don't think we spanked any of our kids past third or fourth grade, so younger than 12. And I also know, I talked to plenty of parents who say, we never spank, because spanking doesn't work for us. Juniors just resist it. And oftentimes, unfortunately, oftentimes, it's because you're not spanking very well and not spanking enough. I can't give details here to talk about your particular situation, your particular child, whether or not there are any learning disabilities involved. I can't give particular details, but I just hesitate and say, don't immediately run to, oh, thank goodness he just gave me an out because spanking doesn't work for us, we don't do it. Don't immediately run there. Again, a conversation with somebody like a pastor who can be specific with you might be helpful. Nonetheless, children grow and strike with a rod becomes less about physically inflicting pain and figuring out how to hurt them, in quotes, to bring the consequence of pain close in other ways. And for that, we should take a clue from the Law of Moses. You follow through the Law of Moses, you see how God set up crime and punishment in the Old Testament law, and you see very often a lot of careful work done to match punishment to crime. If the crime, if the criminal, if the perpetrator was attempting to get something in particular, the punishment afflicts that same thing and takes it away or hurts it. If the crime was an assault on life, murder, kidnapping, sexual assault, the penalty is life. You sought to control life. You sought dominion over life. You sought to take away life. Therefore, your life will be taken from you. However, if the crime is in the realm of wealth, the punishment is in the realm of wealth. Crime matching punishment. To try to take away that thing which was sought. To teach that crime doesn't pay in a very concrete A-to-A way. I sought this and I lost that. I sought to advance and I ended up worse than I was when I started in that same area. Trying to teach. Consequence. Matching it to crime. We should take a clue from that and we should think about our children. How do I hurt them in this particular situation where where discipline is necessary? What was the crime? What was the the foolish sin? How can I match that with a consequence that will begin to teach that didn't pay. I sought to advance in this area and I actually retreated. If you think about that, it should become clear that what we're actually shooting for is not just behavior but attitude. The mindset in the person, in the little person, in the teenager, I sought X. I didn't get it. Something's wrong in my seeking, in my desiring. We're after a heart attitude, not just a behavior. We're trying to teach that's the wrong way to go. That hurts you. In here, in the heart, that's what we're after. You are trying to build, in some way or another, a heart that says something like, 
I want one thing, but I've been told by a proper authority to do something else. No, it doesn't feel like that. I believe that is better for me. I believe the statement, the promise that this path is better for me to walk. And so I will take what I think, what I want, and I will set that aside to do what the proper authority says, what the proper authority wants. And I will, in belief, in faith, obey. Trusting that good will come instead of pain. That's the kind of heart you're trying to build because that's the precursor to a heart that says the same thing about God. God has said, I feel otherwise. All the voices around me in the world say otherwise, but in faith I will believe him, the proper authority, and I will follow him, trusting that I will, be, I will then be able to experience a deferred gratification, a joy and a delight with him instead of pain and loss and sorrow. It's the kind of heart you're trying to build. That's big it starts out really, really, really small. Like this. Start very young. This kind of scenario happened a few times with us with different kids. Junior is in the high chair and you're feeding applesauce. And the lid is on the tray. And while Junior's eating, Junior grabs the lid, throws it on the floor. What do you do? Don't put the lid on the counter. Put the lid right back on the tray and say, no, with your firmest, most angry-looking face that you can find. And then feed another spoon of applesauce. And Junior will grab the lid and throw it on the floor again. Grab the fingers of the hand or the wrist, isolate the hand, slap. No and put the thing right back on the tray. 95% of parents put the lid on the counter. Problem solved, right? No. Problem delayed. You will not... Take, take your hand with your fingers, not with your, hand, not with your palm, not with your fist. Take your fingers, slap yourself in the back of, hand, back of your own hand as hard as you can right now. I, I don't think you should backhand them because you, you'll be out of control. You shouldn't use the, the, the palm of your hand. It's too hard. You clearly shouldn't use your fist. I slap my own hand as hard as I possibly could. It doesn't hurt anymore. Even right now, it does not hurt anymore. I can barely feel a difference right now. In fact, my fingers hurt more than my hand does. Yours? There's no injury. There's no debilitating long-term issue going on here. But you will do that, and Junior will wail like you shot him. And you know you didn't hurt him because he's going to grab the lid and look at you. Well, he does it again. What do you do? Repeat. No. Back on the tray, slap, spoonful of applesauce. 
I've had to do that for like 45 minutes. But eventually, the lid sits on the tray untouched. And we got rid of all of the splatter material beneath the, the high chair. And you don't need to remove all of the vases and, and get everything up above childhood. You don't have to childproof your home because you just home-proofed your child. And you got great rest in soul. Mom, chapter 29 talks about that. You taught your kid, I don't have any idea why mom or dad thinks I shouldn't put this thing, whatever it is, on the floor. I thought that was kind of fun. He says no and really means it, and that hurts. So I guess I won't do that. In faith, I will believe and obey. And you just sowed a little bitty seed for 20 years from now when the adulteress says to him, come here with dripping lips. My husband is away. That looks fun to me, but I should not. That starts in the high chair. And you will bless the Lord with all of your soul when you see your wise son, wise daughter, say no to all the attractive temptations of the world. And the 45-minute wrestling match at, at the high chair will seem worth it. We're trying to change attitudes, not just behaviors. The, the attitude, the internal thing that says, I don't understand why, I don't know why, but I will take that and go with it against what I myself want to do. We're trying to teach them before they even know it. You're teaching them in their hearts to trust and obey. And to distrust, I know best for myself and I will do whatever I want whenever I can. That's the position of folly, and you're trying to drive that away. And you will, if you discipline, with word and with pain, with the rod. Careful sentence there. And you will, if you discipline with word and with rod, and then write down this, if and as the Lord gives the growth. If and as the Lord gives the growth. Because here's the third point. We discipline prayerfully as parents who have the proper perspective of providence. Finally, this is the last point of this sermon and of the whole series. So again, this has a little bit of, a, of an umbrella for the whole series, like the first point did. We pursue discipline. We try to do it for the right reasons and try to do it in the right way with the right attitudes and with the right actions. And the great temptation, the great challenge for us, temptation, is to view this as a mechanistic system of really tight cause and effect. If I do this, then this will happen. If I train up my child in the way he should go, then when he is old, he will not depart from it. We've all heard that verse. It's in Proverbs also. And we've all heard that verse read as if it's law and promise, 
not wisdom literature. Our temptation, we are strongly inclined to approach discipline and approach parenting as a whole in the manner of if-then, cause-effect. We are inclined towards this because it fits with how we want to see all of life. We want to see all of life is under my hand. I'm in charge of it. I'm in control of it. And if I would just do the right things, then I will get the outcome that I want. Of course, that comes back to bite us or crush us if in moments of honest clarity we realize that our children have, in fact, departed from the way. Comes back to bite us then. If I thought that was simple cause and effect, then I, either I raise up my fist against God and say, why didn't you keep your promise, God? I did what I could and ch- child X departed. You said he wouldn't. Why not? Are you even there? Are, are you real? Do you care? Do you exist? What's going on? Or you turn it the other way and you say, child X departed. I'm a failure. If I had trained him up in the way he should go, he would not have departed. He did depart. That means I didn't do it. And the pastor's been preaching for four weeks about stuff I didn't do. I blew that. I skipped that. I totally disregarded that. I did a lousy job at that, and look what I got. Woe is me. That can be crushing. Two weeks ago, I mentioned a similar point and talked about how God has acted in Christ to forgive us of our sins, all of them, including parenting ones, to provide for us Christ as our wisdom in place of our own folly, to grow us in wisdom. I refer you back to that if you want to listen to more about that as the end of the sermon from two weeks ago. But there's maybe something else that we can consider also. Listen to and contemplate Proverbs 21, verses 30 and 31. Proverbs 21, 30 and 31 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel, so no wisdom, understanding, counsel, can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. What do we learn there, and what does it have to do with parenting? Well, what we learn is that wisdom is right. It is appropriate. It is prudent. Wisdom is wise. Make the horse ready for the day of battle. Strengthen it, train it, give it a good saddle, maybe some horse armor. You're a fool if you don't. That's how the world works. That's the usual way of things. You're a fool if you don't train your horse, and you're a fool if you just mount up on any old nag and ride out to battle thinking, it doesn't really matter. Any horse will work. No, it won't. Train a war horse and prepare. That's human action, human responsibility. Humans, even an animal, then operating with wise understanding in the world according to how the world works. Wisdom is good. However, no wisdom, no understanding can avail against the Lord. He gives victory, not the horse. 
Some do trust in horses and chariots, but not wise men. And some just skip preparing the horse altogether, but again, not wise men. God decides who wins, not us with our horses. God decides who wins, not us with our careful parenting. God decides who wins, not us with our perfect discipline. God decides. It's a clear reminder about the doctrine of providence, a doctrine that should be a reminder and a relief and an exhortation in the area of parenting. Providence very briefly says that, teaches us how God works in the world. God has a purpose for everything and everyone in every moment. God has a plan that he is carrying out in every detail always, but only very rarely does he do that miraculously. Miracles are rare. Almost all the time, he's working out his plan, carrying out his purposes by the ordinary workings of human beings and war horses and weather. God's working providentially through the actions and behaviors of the natural order to carry out his purposes. That's providence. And wise parents realize that means he wants me to be a wise parent and to carefully, full of the Spirit, teach my children and discipline them prayerfully. Because I can't make this happen. I am to teach and I am to discipline and, and I, I can and I must, I'm called to it, equipped with the Spirit to do it, but over all of that, I pray, a parent prays, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will in, in me and through me, in this family, in this child, and in this child, and this one, and this one, and this one, in these children, your will be done. I will attempt to act wisely and responsibly under your leading and in your power, but you are the one who brings the results. And I ask you, with my, my heart's love, my heart's desire for these kids, I ask you, but I do not demand from you. I don't have that right. So earlier, two weeks ago, I said, you're not that strong. You can't mess things up. And, and here I want to say, you're, you don't have the right to order things. God does. And realize children, they are precious to us. We, we bring them into the world. We hold them through life. We, we live with them. We interact with them. We raise them. But they don't belong to you. They aren't yours. There, there is a time... And very often we see this in life when we're, we're accustomed to this, always this, parent-child, always this, always this. And as kids grow up, sometimes we have these experiences where it's this. And occasionally we have the experiences where it's this. Dad or mom comes, goes to work for Junior, or sometimes dad and mom attend the church that Junior pastors. And it, it's kind of like, this is, a, this is an odd thing. But I'm beginning to realize... He's an adult. She's an adult, just like me. 
And before the Lord, he, she, stands directly, not through me, directly connected to the Lord, directly accountable, not on my coattails, not hiding behind me, directly accountable. Each one of these precious children, we have been loaned. God made them, God owns them, God is at work in them, and God will use them for God's purposes, according to God's plan, in God's timing. They are not ours. Providentially, we know we are assigned a task for a time, and we should pursue it and pursue Him in it. But we also must realize that no wisdom, no matter how wise I might be, and no understanding, no matter how deeply I might get it, will avail against, will alter, will change the plan and purpose of God. That's the doctrine of providence in all things. It's easiest for us to understand that when we're talking about other people. Sure, I get that when it's related to my neighbor. Your child is a little more like your neighbor than you thought, maybe. In your home for a time, directly before the Lord. Providentially, we work. Prayerfully, we work. We discipline. We instruct. Filled with the Spirit, we attempt to explain to them who God is, and we leave the results to Him. Let me pray. Lord, You are the God who always does what is right. Who always does what is right. We don't thwart Your plans. Thank you for that. As truth be told, I don't, I don't really need to worry about doing it all right. I, I do it mostly wrong. But you have a plan and you have a purpose and you're carrying it out in a way that will build your kingdom, will carry out your will, will cause your name to be exalted in the earth. And I pray that you would use my kids and our kids for your glory and that you would do good to them. I pray that you would turn their hearts towards you. That you would raise them up to be, to be shining stars, some of those that Abraham saw as his people. That's our heart's desire. It is our earnest heart's desire because you have given us these kids and given us love for them. And towards that end, Lord, I pray that you would make me and us here who are parents, that you would make us wise and skillful, dependent and open-handed. Lord, help us. This is, this is hard. It's hard work. It's challenging. And it goes on for a long time. So help us to walk with you in trust. Use us. And we pray, save our kids and raise them up to be worshipers. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org 
or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.